If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We continue on in our verse-by-verse study. Matthew 5, uh, 13 through 20, salt, light, and the law is what I've entitled the message this morning. And uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Help, uh, give me special grace, especially we get into the, some of the difficult uh, things here, even as far as the scholars, the commentaries, uh, not always in agreement here. So, Lord, help me to explain it in a way that's very helpful and profitable for us as, as your people, above all, accurate. So, Lord, give grace as we study the word now, pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in Matthew. The theme is Christ the King. We are in this section here in chapters 5 through 7, which we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what we have there is the pronouncements of the king, uh, proving his judicial right to the throne as seen in the, the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. The whole of the Old Testament anticipated the truth that the Messianic king is coming. The king is coming. Matthew, yeah, he is. That was true then, it's true now in a different sense. There's two comings, but uh, yeah, Matthew presents the truth that the king has come. The king has come. And he came offering the kingdom on the condition of repentance. The way into the kingdom is through repentance. And that's the great theme in the scriptures, the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And and then with that, the the, the coming Messiah who brings in the kingdom. Well, how do you get to the kingdom? Well, repentance. Repentance. It's not only true for the nation of Israel. uh, Nationally, it's true for every individual. This is how Christ uh, started his ministry. Uh, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4 emphasizes repentance is necessary to enter the kingdom. Matthew 5 shows that re, uh, what repentance looks like in the life. Uh, Matthew 5, in, in effect, presents Christ's kingdom ethic of how the repentant should then live. The kingdom ethic, which is to be lived out in the, in the lives of the repentant, is reflected in the Beatitudes, which is then fleshed out in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. So everything kind of flows here. You need to repent. And if you're repentant, here's how you should then live. The Beatitudes. And then everything else kind of builds in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. Kind of fleshes this out in terms of uh, these kingdom ethics, as I call them, uh, represented in the Beatitudes. So just uh, note uh, as an overview where we were at last week, because everything builds on this. uh, what What are the Beatitudes all about? Well, acknowledge spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Acknowledge spiritual poverty. Um, We don't have anything to offer God uh, to get to the kingdom. How do we get in? How do we get cleansed from our sin? Well, we know the rest of the story. We know the truth of the cross. It's all about what Jesus did for us. But in terms of our response, we have to acknowledge it. This is called repentance, where I say, I changed my mind. I can't do it. I need a savior which has been provided by God. But that involves poor in spirit, acknowledging my spiritual poverty, godly sorrow, those who mourn, humble submission to God's reign, the meek, pursue godliness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, concern for others, merciful. 
Passion for holiness, the pure in heart. Strive for unity, peacemakers. Stand for what is right, persecuted for righteousness. This is what is to characterize kingdom citizens. Now, we're not in the kingdom yet, but we have kingdom citizenship as God's children. We're headed for the kingdom, and we're to live accordingly. Those who live like this, that is, living out the Beatitudes, really function as salt and light in the world. And Christ now uses two metaphors, namely salt and light, to describe the influence of his kingdom people, uh, the influence that they will have in the world. So let's pick it up. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You is emphatic, referring to Christ's disciples. It is Christ's people themselves who are the salt of the earth. They function as salt as they live out the Beatitudes. That's the flow of the thought. The power of the kingdom citizen is seen in their metaphorical influence of being salt and light. No, Christ does not say his disciples should become salt. But rather, as repenters, this is what they already are. You are, note the word are, you are the salt of the earth. Now it is expected that true disciples will live out the Beatitudes to one degree or another. And none of us do it perfectly. We're all in process as we're being conformed into the image of Christ. But we won't, uh, completion will be glorification. And none of us are glorified. If you are, please stand up. I'd like to take a close look at you. (laughs) None of us are are there. We're We're all in process. But to one degree or another, uh, we are to live out the Beatitudes and as such be salt, uh, the salt of the earth. Now, salt in the ancient world served a number of constructive purposes in relation to food in particular. Uh, It added flavor and it served as a preservative. As the salt of the earth, Christ's disciples bring seasoning to an otherwise tasteless world. Uh, They make life palatable flavorful. Uh, It is believers who bring a special kind of grace and pleasantness to a world full of unattractiveness, spiritually speaking. And it's ugly. The flesh is ugly. I mean, if you don't have a representation of of God's grace uh, exhibited through his people, uh, it's all, all ugly all the time. However, salt in the time of Jesus was mainly used as a preservative. And many commentators feel this is perhaps the main emphasis here. Rubbed into meat, salt would slow the decay. God's people, therefore, serve as a preserving agent in the context of a perverse and corrupt world. It's so funny. The world absolutely does not appreciate God's people, but they should thank us. We are the preserving agent that God is using in the world. If you think uh, things are bad now, just remove God's people from the equation and things deteriorate very quickly into utter ruin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of the restrainer, which is even now restraining the Antichrist from coming into position. I take it this restrainer is the Holy Spirit working through the church. 
This is the great activity of the Holy Spirit today. He's working through the church. This is the restraining ministry, I think, that's in view there. And when this restraining influence is removed, all hell will break loose on planet Earth. Very early in the tribulation period after the restrainer is removed, uh, when the second seal is opened, of course, the first seal is there's a false peace. Uh, Antichrist signs the covenant. But the second seal is, is on the heels of that opened, and instantly you have worldwide calamity. We read about this in Revelation 6, 3, and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the, the second living creature say, Come and see. What do you see? Another horse, fire, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. So this is a whole earth type context. And the people should kill one another. I mean, that's where they go. And there was given him a great sword. This is massive amount of killing. Jesus said of those days, quote, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, 12. The people of God are gone. The love has gone out of the world. Now, there's always a remnant, and we could talk about that, but the point is, uh, the preserving element of the salt at the rapture is removed. And it's not a pretty picture. In the meantime... God's kingdom citizens slow the process of society's decay and corruption. We don't stop it. But through the Holy Spirit, we serve as a restraining, preserving influence. It's not politics. Should I repeat that? It's not politics, social reform, or legislation that is the salt. Do you remember what Jesus said? You are the salt. That's who's the salt. That's what's the salt. It's God's people themselves. Ed Glasscock says, By the moral and ethical standards of God's people as seen in the Beatitudes, by their higher value system, higher regard for all human life, Christ's servants offer the flavor and preserving factor of their presence. How true that is. The best thing that's ever happened to this world is Jesus Christ and by extension, then, his body, his people. Well, Christ then went on to address the condition of when salt loses its flavor. Technically, pure salt cannot lose its flavor. But this is the point. The salt in the time of Christ in the Holy Land was largely derived from the area of the Dead Sea. And it was often contaminated and therefore could lose its effectiveness. Now, none of us as salt are totally pure. Uh, we still have a few flesh contaminants that remain, right? Yeah, we do. And hence the warning that we endeavor to remain a salty influence. You know, we have the flesh, but we also have the spirit. And when the spirit's in control, we're a salty influence. But when the flesh is in control, it's, it's not. We, we have to lose that saltiness. When Christ says, if the salt loses its flavor, the word loses can be translated uh, as foolish. So this could literally be translated, if the salt be made foolish. Um, I've got a slide here from Ed Glasscock, who is one of the guys I read. I really like Ed as far as his commentary on Matthew. But he writes... In the, only, in the only other New Testament uses of the word, Romans one twenty two and 1 Corinthians one twenty, 
The context is the foolishness of human reasoning in comparison with God's plan. You see, the rabbis metaphorically connected the idea of salt to that of wisdom. And we see that kind of reflected in the New Testament, even in Paul's uh, writings. For example, here in Colossians chapter 4, he says, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, unbelievers. Redeeming the time. How do you do that? How do you walk in wisdom? Note the theme, wisdom here. Uh, Let your speech be always with grace. You ready for this? Seasoned with salt. You see the connection between walking in wisdom and seasoned with salt? Your speech seasoned with salt? That you may know how you ought to answer each one. The Beatitudes are full of salty truth, denoting the preserving wisdom of kingdom ethics. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt that lost its flavor was good for nothing relative to food and therefore was thrown out on pathways to harden it into kind of like a sidewalk or a walkway. If the disciple loses their saltiness, they are no longer really fit for kingdom work. If the Beatitudes are not on display in a person's life, they're really no longer serving God's kingdom purposes. And it's very sad to come to the place where a person is really being good for nothing in terms of kingdom usefulness. There is a warning here. It can happen. I think God takes such people home. I mean, there is a sin unto death. That's, that's related to believers. Again, Ed Glasscock says, This was not a threat of losing one's salvation, but of being, but of being useless and cast aside in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The consequences of such failure does not involve loss of salvation, but loss of reward at the Bema seat of Christ. He's talking to disciples here. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Once again, Christ speaks emphatically, saying to his disciples, you, you are the light of the world. Now, prophetically, the Old Testament prophet said the Messiah would bring the light seen this all over in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 42, 49. When Jesus came, he said, I am the light of the world. So which is it? Let me ask you, which is it? Is Jesus the light of the world or are we his people? Thank you. I heard that very timid yes. (laughs) That's the right answer. The answer is, of course, Jesus is the source light with a capital L. We are, in effect, his light reflectors. We are light with a small l. In a sense, we are an extension of Christ's light ministry. But he is always the source light. We are simply reflectors. Now, our kingdom purpose as as kingdom citizens is not only to bring flavor and a preservative quality to the world, but also to shine the light of God's truth in how we live. That's the context here. And we shine the truth through verbally sharing, but the emphasis here is on how we live. We ourselves are to be the light. William Hendrickson says, worldly mindedness or secularization is here condemned 
But so also is aloofness and isolationism. You know, he doesn't want us to be in isolation, as he will go on to, to show. Light makes things clear. It helps people to see. We are the light in that we are the means that God is using to help people see his truth. This is our role in the world. Our kingdom role. We are the only Bible some people will ever read. Let me tell you, most people do not delve deeply into the Bible. But they're watching you. If you're claiming to be a Christ follower, they're watching you. And they're really watching you closely because they're looking for some hypocritical something in there. Looking for a mess up somewhere. They're watching. D.A. Carson says, In the Old Testament, as in the New, light most frequently symbolizes purity as opposed to filth, truth or knowledge as opposed to error or ignorance, and divine revelation and presence as opposed to reprobation and abandonment by God. Well, Jesus compares the light of our witness to a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. He intends for our witness to be obvious, an obvious and open testimony, and he emphasizes the point. Verse 15 says, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. The purpose of the lamp is to give off light. Not to hide it under a basket, right? Rather, it is put in in a more more prominent place, a most prominent place, to give off as much light as possible for all who are in the house. So the idea then is that believers should seek as much exposure as possible for the giving off of our light. The light of our character, attitudes, and actions should be obvious for all around. We want it to be seen. If we are kingdom citizens, the Beatitudes should should shine brightly in our lives. And so he says, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The emphasis here is that our light is seen in the form of good works. This is the outworking of the Beatitudes in our lifestyle. The Beatitudes should be on display in your good works, in your lifestyle. Now note very carefully here, the goal is not to draw attention to self for the sake of self. The motivation here is that God be on display. Paul would say that Christ would be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. That's the goal. The motivation is that God be on display, that he be glorified. This is letting your light shine for God's glory, not your own, not your own. William MacDonald says, the emphasis is on the ministry of Christian character. The winsomeness of lives in which Christ is seen speaks louder than the persuasion of words. Yes, God uses words too. But the real power punch is words that are shared through the prism of a life of integrity. A life of good works that point to God. Words without the good works of light in the life are probably going to fall on deaf ears. Only a life-changing kind of faith really makes an impact. I love this quote from D.L. Moody. A holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. Ah, that's good, isn't it? That's what lighthouses do. You are the light. 
It's to be seen. You say, well, I'm just spouting everything all the time. Well, you're maybe just blowing people away, especially if they don't see anything. They need to see it. This is the emphasis here in Matthew 5.16. Matthew 5.16 gives the first of 16 references to your father. It's talking to believers, disciples. The first of 16 references here to your father in the Sermon on the Mount. This is kingdom ethics living for disciples. So clearly this is directed to disciples who know God as their father. Now, many commentators think at this point that Jesus shifts gears and goes a whole new direction in terms of the discourse. But I don't think so. I think there is contextual continuity in view here. And in my study, if, if I've emphasized one thing perhaps above most all others in my teaching ministry, is you not only need to uh, think... You need to think in context about what is, is being said. There's a flow of things in the Bible. And when you need to think in terms of the flow, in terms of the context, you're beginning to think maturely in terms of Christian uh, understanding. That's how I understand this. So note uh, here a, a few things as far as the flow of thought. First, we have the emphasis on repentance required to enter the kingdom, chapter 4. And then we have what repentance looks like in the life, the Beatitudes. Flowing out of that, the influence of living out kingdom ethics, salt and light. And now, the basis of kingdom ethics. Christ came to make this kind of living possible. And that's what I think he is saying now as we continue on. The controlling subject is the kingdom of heaven. We're kingdom citizens, and we should live like it. Verse 17, Christ says, do not think. Now, he didn't stop there, right? He does want you to think. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Oh, my, 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 my. We, he really opened up a can of worms here. I mean, the commentators, you cannot believe the amount of ink, I mean, that has been spilled trying to figure out what in the world he is saying. How do the Old Testament scriptures tie in with this kingdom teaching emphasis put forth by Christ? That's in context what we're talking about. Is this whole new thing without any connection to the Old Testament scriptures? Well, Christ makes the strong point that there is a connection. There is a connection. When he talks about, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, the law refers to the first five books of the Bible, often called the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets refers to the rest of the Old Testament given through the prophets. The law emphasizes the legal code the Jews were mandated to live under. The prophets also called the people to repentance and to align with this code and, and also look forward to a promise coming messianic deliverer. Now, the, that phrase, the law and the prophets, is, often is a way to refer to the entire Old Testament. Uh, sometimes a third division is, is thrown in, such as we find in Luke 24, 44, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
the wisdom literature category. Either way, this was a way of referencing the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. So Christ really was saying, think not that I am come to destroy any part of the Old Testament scriptures. He did not come to destroy any part of it. The word destroy means to abolish, to throw down, or to demolish. This word was often used in reference to the demolishing of a building in the sense of destroying it or tearing it down completely. Christ did not come to tear down and destroy the law or the prophets. But properly understood to enhance its fulfillment. Bible knowledge commentary. Jesus was not presenting a rival system, which is often kind of, that's what he's kind of presented. You got the law, but Christ, what he's doing is, he was not presenting a rival system to the law of Moses and the words of the prophets, but a true fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So Christ said he did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill. The key to understanding what Christ meant is having a proper understanding of that word, fulfill. What did Christ mean when he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? In what sense did he fulfill those Old Testament scriptures? Well, there's actually three main ideas about what this may mean. And here's where the ink begins to be spilled. Fulfill. Greek word, plural. Uh, Fulfill in the sense of prophetically. Fulfill in the sense of obediently. Or fulfill in the sense of spiritually. The problem is that in a sense all of these are true. And most certainly there is overlap here. Prophetically, Christ came to fulfill all the Old Testament types and prophecies. The sacrificial lamb. Uh, He is our Passover. Uh, Where do we get the idea of Passover? Well, where in the Bible does it come from? Does it come from the prophets or does it come from the law? Where does it come from? In a category. The law, right? Uh, The book of uh, Exodus. The book of Exodus. So you can see, uh, he came to fulfill all these Old Testament types, whether coming out of the law, whether coming out of the prophets, such as Isaiah. They all find fulfillment in him as he taught the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Remember what he told them there? He's connecting the Old Testament dots. And he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. I was trying to connect with you guys back here before I was even crucified. And he said, here's what I want you to understand. That all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. I want you to know I'm the major subject in all the Old Testament scriptures, and they all find their fulfillment in me. Certainly that is true. Second point. Others take it that Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets in the sense that he obeyed them perfectly. Repeatedly, we find in the New Testament that Christ was without sin, which is to say, he obeyed the law of God perfectly. 
Nobody else has been able to do that, but he did it. One example of this emphasis is in 1 John 3, 4, and 5. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, breaking of God's law. And sin is lawlessness. That's what it is. It's a breaking of God's law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. He kept the law perfectly. Well, these views are all true theologically. But in context, there's that word, in context, I think there is a third view here that is actually the preferred view uh, or emphasis. Again, acknowledging overlap. The word fulfill means to fill out, to expand, or to complete. It does not mean to bring to an end, but rather to develop in a further sense. Expand. Fill out. The focus in this section is the relationship between Jesus' teaching as he teaches with authority, and that of the Old Testament scriptures. Not so much on his actions. The emphasis is on his teaching. So the fulfill emphasis is probably not so much on Jesus obeying the scriptures, but rather on his giving them their full intended meaning. In context, this is the sense in the formula quotations, as we continue on in the flow of thought, as we will get to, Lord willing, next week. But in context, this is a sense in the, in the formula quotations where Jesus repeatedly says, But I say to you, you have heard you shall not commit adultery. That's true. Right there in the Bible. But I say to you, you shouldn't even so much as look on a woman to lust after her. Giving it a deeper sense. The deeper sense of the meaning of the scriptures. Jesus the Messiah came to show us the true, deeper intent of the Old Testament scriptures. He gave them a a deeper meaning than they had seen before. A richer, expanded understanding. Let me give you a few quotes here. John MacArthur says, We are not to think that Jesus' teaching in the verses that follow was meant to alter, abrogate, or replace the moral content of the Old Testament law. He was neither giving a new law nor modifying the old, but rather explaining the true significance. Emphasis mine. Explaining the true significance of the moral content of Moses' law in the rest of the Old Testament. Tim LaHaye says, Having laid the foundation of the message in the summary statements of the Beatitudes, Jesus now proceeds to show the superiority of his message to that of the law of Moses. The New Testament gospel is not contradictory to the Old Testament law. Rather, it is a fulfillment of the spiritual intention. Emphasis mine. Fulfillment of the spiritual intention of that law through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And one more, this comes from the ESV Study Bible. The entire Old Testament is the expression of God's will, but is now to be taught according to Jesus' interpretation of its intent and meaning. Emphasis mine. 
It is now to be taught according to Jesus' interpretation of its intent and meaning. It's not enough that you merely don't commit adultery. You're not even to do this in your heart. Now you you have an expanded, a deeper understanding. I want you to pause right here for just a moment. You know, Selah, sometimes we're reading and we we tend to skip the Selahs. They kind of got it off to the side. You know, you're reading through the Psalms, it says Selah. Loosely translated, stop and soak that in. Uh, I'd like to insert a Selah here, not in the text, but just in our thinking. Pause right here for a moment to, to stop and soak this in. If this is true, that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in the sense of showing its deeper meaning and intent in a way that no one ever did before, what must this be saying about his person? Think about that. Realize that God all over the place in the Old Testament asserts that it is his prerogative to give the law. It's God's law, period. Now Jesus comes along and says, let me tweak this for you. Not in a, not in a negative sense of destroying it and doing away with it, but stretching your understanding in a deeper sense. Jesus now comes along and gives a deeper sense of it. And that's where this goes. When he gets done, here's what we find in Matthew 7. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. That's what blew them away. Why? For he taught them as one having authority. And not as the scribes. You are scribes. So-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this. And look at my footnote over here. So-and-so says this. Jesus spoke as the authority on all the law and the prophets. You know what he did? He taught like he was God. Because he was. Because he was. God in a human body. D.A. Carson says, here Jesus presents himself as the scripture's sole authoritative interpreter. The one through whom alone the Old Testament finds its valid continuity and significance. That is making... Boy, I tell you, if you're looking for another argument for the fact that Jesus is deity, it's right here. Now, in Christ, we are not under the legal code of the Mosaic Law. We know that. This is so clear all the way through the New Testament scriptures. For example, Romans 10.9 says... For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But here's the deal. We as believers in Christ are not under the law of Moses. But there is a, what I call, glory of God ethic. You know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That ethic is always in, in place throughout the history of all dispensations. Uh, There is a glory of God ethic contained within the law, and that reality never changes. We are no longer under the law of Moses, but that does not mean that we are lawless. We as believers are now under the law of Christ, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 9.21. Christ has now become the rule of our life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Our behavior is now molded not by fear of penal punishment as seen under the Mosaic law, but rather by a loving internal desire to please our Lord. Uh, We've been regenerated. We have a new nature. We have the Holy Spirit. Here is the point of continuity. It's found in this issue of love. Love. God is love, and his character never changes. This is always the standard. Jesus said the entire law and the prophets hangs on two commandments. You know them, right? Love the Lord with all. Let me summarize it. Love God with everything in you, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. With all your mind. That, that never changes. Our behavior now is to be governed by that. This is always a standard. The Mosaic law framed this. Uh, oh, I should have added the second, the second thing it hangs on is love, the na- love your neighbor as yourself, right? L- love God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, the Mosaic law framed this in terms of outward obedience with a penal code for noncompliance. No one could live up to this. Who loves God with everything in them all the time? Who loves your neighbor as yourself? I mean, you don't get up in the morning and think about brushing your neighbor's teeth, do you? I mean, you're thinking about yourself. I'm not even going to try this on you. <laughs> oh, but loving your neighbor sometimes means leaving them sleep, right? Anyway, anyway. Um, no one could live up to this standard. I mean, but it was all about love. It all summarized. You could boil it all down to love. Love God. Love your neighbor. But now, now, drum roll please, Jesus comes along and teaches something deeper. It's all about the heart and God changing us from the inside out. God empowering us from the inside to where it's not mere about outward legal Conformity to the law, to the code of the law, but rather about keeping, are you ready for this? The spirit of the law. This is indeed a fulfillment of the law on a deeper sense than was ever known before. And Christ came to make it possible that we could live this way. There's a higher standard presented by Jesus than anything found in the Old Testament scriptures. Talk about radical living. Christ came to make it possible. Look at these radical verses. I mean, they're in your New Testament, right there in the book of Romans. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And verse 4 says that the righteous requirement of the law of all things might be fulfilled in us. How's that happen? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we walk in the power of the Spirit, we actually fulfill the deeper intention of the law as taught by Christ. And as made possible by Christ at His first coming, following the story through His death on the cross, His sending of the Holy Spirit. Paul in Galatians 6.2 shows that the law of Christ is really the law of love. 
For us now, the emphasis is not merely on outward conformity to a legal code, but rather yielding to the Spirit, of which the chief fruit of the Spirit is love. And when we do this, we fulfill the deeper intention of the law, which is really all about a a heart yielded over to and controlled by God, as seen in the fruit of the Spirit. Paul just couldn't shake this theme. Romans 13, 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love one another. This is what it's all about. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul, we're not under the law. Why are you bringing that in? Well, I'm just being consistent with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, we're not under the law as a, as a code, a legalistic code, but we're under the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit, the law of love, which really fulfills the deeper intent of the law to start with. The commandments of the law, you should not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not bear false witness, not covet. There's any other commandment, whatever it is. All summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Christ came to make this possible in our lives. He came to fulfill it, not destroy it, but that you might fulfill it in a deeper sense. And again, again, and again. (laughs) Sorry, weird sense of humor I got here. I blame my mother for almost all of it. Anyway, Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're not under the law. We're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of love, which fulfills the deeper intent of the law to start with. We're under the higher law of Christ, which when lived out, results in a deeper spiritual fulfillment of the essence of the Mosaic law. It's not contrary to it, but rather the fulfillment of it in a deeper sense, in a spiritual sense. It's in this sense that Christ came to to fulfill or fill out the law and the prophets. Now, the legal code found in the law of Moses is not binding today. However, the moral principles embodied in the law that reflect the very unchanging nature of God are still binding. Hence, nine of the Ten Commandments of the old code are applied to the new code in the new covenant that we now find ourselves under. And indeed... Through new covenant realities, by the grace of God, we can now live according to this higher standard as taught by Christ as we walk in the Spirit. This is radical kingdom living. We don't do so perfectly. But as we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the deeper intention of the law. There's no contradiction here. Properly understood. William McDonald says nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament with an important distinction. They are not given as law, that is, with penalty attached, but as training in righteousness for the people of God. So, Christ's deeper fulfillment of the law 
seen in his teaching. He modeled it. He inaugurated it through his blood of the new covenant. And he sent the Holy Spirit to empower it. Jesus came to make it possible for the spirit of the law to be fulfilled in us as we walk according to the spirit. We are now entering into verse 18, and I'm going to take a little drink of water. I I try not to ever do this, but, you know, I hate to do it because you have nothing else to do but watch me do it. (laughs) Verse 18. For as surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. For assuredly, that that phrase, for assuredly, is a strong assertion of authority. Occurring 31 times in Matthew. Howard Voss says, Jesus spoke with supreme authority. He did not need to quote another. Thus he put himself on a level with God. We see that all the way through. This is the first use of this formula for assuredly, which signifies a statement of utmost importance. It's it's connected to the previous statement in verse 17 by the explanatory word for. Thus, verse 18 affirms and further explains verse 17. The deeper sense of the law as fulfilled in Christ will not pass off the scene till heaven and earth pass away. All the kingdom messianic prophecies yet need to be fulfilled. All that haven't been fulfilled yet need to be fulfilled and will be so in the kingdom. The deeper moral application of the law as found in Christ endures and will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom in relation to the fulfillment of the new covenant. You know, we we have a little preview right now. We live under the new covenant, but but the full enactment of it, the full experience of it uh, with Israel and so forth will happen in the kingdom. Far from being abolished, The law and the prophets are not going anywhere. You say, we don't have to to even pay attention to this. Let's just cut the Old Testament. Some want to do that, by the way. But Christ said one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The law as a system was repealed. A legal system, a legal code that we're under. That was repealed. But the deeper spiritual essence of it as fulfilled in Christ remains in a new covenant reality to be lived out by his people. Now, when he says the jot, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass. uh, the, The word jot refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle refers to a small stroke, small stroke that distinguished it from uh, distinguished one letter from another. Let me show you what we're talking about here. Jot uh, corresponds to the, the Hebrew word yo, denoting the, the tenth letter of the, of the Hebrew alphabet. But it's just a, a little jot. By the way, uh, the Greek translation is iota. You know, you say, I don't care one iota about this. You know, you say, I, I, don't, I don't even care a little bit. You know, we use language like that. It goes back to this. Just, just a jot. And the tittle, uh, note the difference between the letter Beth or Bet and, and Kof. And see the difference here? Can you see it? 
You see that little bit? This is just identical. But there's just one little stroke difference. Right there on the heel of, of Beth. You see it? Jesus here emphasizes the inerrancy and the authority of the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures right down to the very letter. Yea, down to the smallest part of every letter. You know what that's called? Total inerrancy. Thus, Jesus affirms the highest view of the inspired scriptures possible. I mean, nothing is going anywhere. The deeper application and fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures will continue to be completely relevant and binding until all is fulfilled. And that doesn't happen until we got a new heavens and a new earth in place. It will apply until the heaven and the earth pass away, meaning throughout the duration of the millennial kingdom, which will then give way to a new heaven and a new earth. And then what happens? Oh, thanks for asking. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. What's going to be there? In which righteousness dwells. Things will be different in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a context then in which there is perfect righteousness dwelling. And in which perfect righteousness reigns supreme. Until then, the deeper significance of the law as fulfilled in Christ remains relevant in the kingdom people of Christ. The spirit of the law will be fulfilled in God's kingdom people. In them living out new covenant realities throughout the duration of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he drives, he drives home this point. Verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, this instruction is directed to Christ's disciples. Since the deeper essence and spiritual application of the law as applied by Christ remains, then all is to be taken seriously. The deeper essence of the law as fulfilled in new covenant living is not to be set aside in any way, shape, or form. The word breaks means to annul or make invalid. Before you say one of the commandments doesn't apply you might want to think about this verse. You might want to think about it in context. Remember, nine of the Ten Commandments from the Law of Moses are repeated and applied to the new covenant code we now live under. A couple of quotes here for clarification. Moody Bible Commentary. Only where the New Testament reiterates the Old Testament commands are believers to keep the law... But then it becomes the law as fulfilled in Jesus, also known in the New Testament as the law of Christ. And then the New Bible commentary, only where the New Testament reiterates the, the Old Testament commands are believers to keep the law. But then, oh, that's what I already read. Next quote. <laughs> uh, these commandments are usually taken as referring to the Old Testament law, but it may be that these look forward to what follows. Christ's deeper interpretation of the law, which indicates the way to its true fulfillment. In other words, the deeper spiritual application of the moral principles of the law as fulfilled in Christ 
are in view. Now, the Beatitudes, therefore, are all to be applied. The commandments given in the Sermon on the Mount are to be kept and taught. The kingdom ethics have abiding value. So much for those saying, well, this doesn't apply to us today. It won't apply until we really get into the kingdom. (laughs) Boy, you're really missing if you ask me. The law of love that fulfills the spirit of the law in in an even deeper sense is to be applied at every point. The moral law of God is to be taken very seriously at every point. The entirety of scripture is important and rightly divided. We are to apply it all. As Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration. And it's all profitable for instruction in righteousness. Christ is here emphasizing one's view of the whole book. The whole counsel of God. You know, there's a lot of what I call piecemeal Christians who seemingly pick and choose the commandments they want to keep. You know, things like the role of men and women. You know, we we can fudge on that, you know, and our, our thinking is evolving. Uh, Many compromise on on biblical separation regarding immorality. I know it used to do church discipline for those things, but are you kidding me now? If we do that, we won't have a church. Many promote what I call a lordless gospel that virtually gives a license to sin. You know, we're under grace, after all, so it doesn't really matter how you live because everything's grace. And really kind of teach a a form of antinomianism, which means lawlessness. No regard for the law of God in any sense. And on and on. Paul emphasized teaching the whole counsel of God. Nothing in the Bible is insignificant. And Paul was so bold as to say things like this. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. There are greater and lesser commandments. But the point is they're all important. For example, jaywalking, and there are, if there's laws against it where you live, I mean, uh, jaywalking uh, would be wrong, right? I mean, we are to obey the laws of the land, right? Right? I've got a slight amen there. <laughs> uh, jaywalking does not rise, however, to the level of rape. But as kingdom citizens, we should seek to apply all Christ's commandments in all things, both great and small. Christ calls us to maintain a high view of Scripture in its entirety and then live and teach accordingly. How seriously we take the Scriptures reflects on how seriously we take God. ESV uh, Study Bible. The rabbis recognized a distinction between light commandments, such as tithing garden produce, and weighty commandments, such as those uh, concerning idolatry, murder, etc. Jesus demands a commitment to both, uh, the least and the greater commandments, and yet condemns those who confuse the toe. That is to say, the two. The entire Old Testament is the expression of God's will, but is now to be taught according to Jesus' interpretation of its intent and meaning. Emphasis, mine. But is now to be taught according to Jesus' interpretation of it, of its intent and meaning. But again, we must rightly divide the word. We are not under the law as a system. The ceremonial law does not apply. But the morals of the law related to this law of love, the morals of the law do have application as interpreted and applied by Christ. And doing and teaching go together. 
Certainly we teach by our example. If we don't practice biblical separation in regard to worldliness, then we're breaking the commandment of God and by way of influence teaching others to do so as well. Our practice teaches uh, in the sense of our influence. Now in view here are disciples who are all headed towards the kingdom. All in view are kingdom citizens, but some in the kingdom who were lax on what they considered to be the, the least of the commandments will be called least in the kingdom. I hope that's not true of me, and I hope it's not true of you. But some are going to be called least in the kingdom. Hey, there's the least in the kingdom. <laughs> They're going to be called least in the kingdom. That's what he said. I, I'm not saying he said it. And those who took all the commandments seriously in the doing and teaching of them will be called great in the kingdom. You see, some are salty Christians and some lose their flavor. Some maintain a high view of Scripture, taking all the commandments seriously, and some don't. Some will be called least in the kingdom and some will be called great. There will be differing reward status in the kingdom. Even though all true believers will certainly be there. I think sometimes when Christ gets into these areas, we don't feel so comfortable. That's kind of convicting. Relatively speaking, there will be those in the kingdom who have a small or relatively unimportant position. Relatively speaking. You say, well, it's just enough that I'm there. Well, that's the main thing for sure. But rewards are important as taught throughout Jesus' ministry in the New Testament scriptures. There'll be some that have a relatively unimportant position called least. And this will be because they were compromising Christians. Not taking the word of God very seriously. Eh, who cares? Got my ticket to heaven. Well, I tell you, once we get there, you're going to wish you'd been faithful. Wycliffe Bible Commentary. Those who are not opposed in principle to God's law, but have avoided its lesser requirements, will not be cast out of the kingdom, but will have a lesser reward in the kingdom. And again, William MacDonald says, The wonder is that such people are permitted in the kingdom at all, but then entrance into the kingdom is by faith in Christ. A person's position in the kingdom is determined by his obedience and faithfulness while on earth. The person who obeys the law of the kingdom a deeper sense, the new covenant realities, that person shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But lest we think it doesn't really matter then how people live, at least they'll be in the kingdom. If we tend to, if we're tempted to go that way, Christ goes on to say this, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. Once again, we see the voice of authority in Christ saying, For I say to you. This phrase is found 14 times in the Sermon on the Mount. Stanley Toussaint says, This is the first time the Lord uses this clause, I say to you. By it, he shows his authority as the king to determine who will enter the kingdom. The law was an external emphasis. And the righteousness exhibited by the scribes and the Pharisees was all about externals. It's all showy. It was about external self-righteousness. In contrast, Christ emphasized a response of the heart, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Remember that beatitude back in Matthew 5, 8? The righteousness 
that will enter the kingdom is based on true repentance, as seen in chapters 3 and 4. On the basis of repentance and faith, God therefore imputes righteousness to the true believer. We see this all the way through the scriptures. Uh, Abraham believed in the Lord. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 4. Uh, therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. There's application for us as well. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe. So believers in Christ have imputed righteousness. Uh, Christ's righteousness is put to our account because of what he did on the cross when we believe in him. But here is Jesus' point. Those who have a true repentance slash faith, and they always go together, will have the outworking of righteousness in their life. It works from the inside out, not the outside in. The scribes and the Pharisees had it backwards. They emphasized an external righteousness that never affects the heart and will never get you into the kingdom. This must, by the way, have been shocking to hear. You understand, in contemporary Judaism, the scribes were the religious scholars, and the Pharisees were the religious conservatives, and they were considered to be the most holy people in all the land. If anyone in that culture expected to make it to the kingdom, it was these people. And that's what everybody generally thought. Now Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. Those guys over there, they're praying so piously and acting so piously all the time. You better be, you better have a righteousness that goes deeper than that or you're not going to get in. Jesus presents a higher standard saying, their merely external, formal, outward, legalistic form of righteousness will not get them into the kingdom. As Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. I don't care how many right things you do, it's still like filthy rags. All the way through here, Jesus is emphasizing a deeper spiritual dynamic. True conversion results in a changed heart that applies the spirit of the law and not merely the legal code of it. The result is seen in changed lives that are the salt and light of the world. Warren Wiersbe said, I have always felt that Matthew 5.20 was the key to this important sermon. The main theme is true righteousness. The religious leaders had an artificial external righteousness based on law. But the righteousness Jesus described is a true and vital righteousness that begins internally in the heart and then works its way out into life. In effect, Jesus is teaching that where there is true repentance and faith, there will also be the outworking of practical righteousness in the life, certainly to some degree. The remainder of the sermon builds on this truth and amounts to commentary in effect on Matthew 5.20. John MacArthur says, In the verses that follow, Jesus unpacks the full moral significance of the law and shows that the righteousness the law calls for actually involves an internal conformity to the spirit of the law rather than mere external compliance to the letter. Exactly. Well, there's three categories of people really seen in our, in our study this morning as I wrap it up here. Number one, salt and light disciples. You are. You are the salt. You are the light. And you are salt and light as you keep the commandments, the kingdom ethics brought forth by Christ. You will be called great in the kingdom. And then there's disciples who lose their flavor. Oh, my. 
They break the command. It's just a little compromise here, a little compromise there, and a little, you know, it's all, we're all under grace. It's all good. Loser flavor. Break the command. Call it least in the kingdom. I, I don't want to be there. I'm glad I'm going there. I'm going, I'm going to the kingdom. I trust you are too. If you're a believer in Christ, you're going. Jesus paid it all. It's finished. True enough. We preach the gospel of grace above everything. But now that you've come to repentance, how should you then live? That's the issue. And it matters. And then there are those, that third category, will not even enter the kingdom. Uh, you just got outward conformity. You're not even going. I don't care how much you play the game. I don't care how much you come to church. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care what you can recite. How long and wonderful your prayer. None of that matters. It's got to begin in the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to be the ones that see the kingdom. True story. Some Christians were out witnessing to people. They met four young men and began to share Christ with them. However, these young men insisted they were already Christians. As evidenced in their, are you ready for this? Christian tattoos. Those witnessing proceeded to emphasize to them that their tattoos did not make them real Christians. You see, outward religious externals will never get you into the kingdom. True kingdom citizens have a heart conversion involving true repentance, which then demonstrates itself in the life. Well, let me ask you, are you merely an external Christian? What we might call a tattoo Christian? I didn't say tattooed. (laughs) A tattoo Christian in the sense of the illustration. Or are you a true internal Christian who has a faith that works from the inside out, demonstrating itself in the life? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Be among them. Let's have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.